It has been encouraging to discover the men of God that we find in the New Testament, those that were chosen to be the divine emissaries of God's truth, the elite force that he chose to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men. And may I invite you to begin with Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to look specifically at one of these men today. In Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew. And this morning we will look at Bartholomew, twelve ordinary, common, unremarkable men, men that were fraught with the same besetting sins as all of us. We have seen even thus far that some of them were impetuous, some were proud, they were really all hard-headed, some were cowards. Some were hot-headed, spiritually immature, prejudiced, prone to depression, stubborn. And many times they were just downright stupid. Sounds like me. Sounds like you. Yet, in each case, save Judas Iscariot, Jesus patiently shaped these men, these most unlikely men, these unqualified men, into the pillars of of the church. Indeed, as 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and the weak things of the world to shame things which are strong. Well, certainly this gives us all hope, does it not? Marvelous testimony it is to both the love and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So today we get to know Bartholomew. His Hebrew name his surname, I should say, is son of Tolmai, and he was also called Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, which means God has given. In fact, the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as the book of Acts, really only list him in the list of the twelve, so we can glean no information from them about his life, but we can learn of Bartholomew in just two passages in the Gospel of John, in John 1, where we will spend our time this morning, and also in John chapter 21. And John uses the name Nathaniel, and so that is the name that I will use this morning. Now, while the information is sketchy, it is enough to draw a reasonably clear picture of this beloved apostle. And I trust that you will discover many truths that will be applicable to your life this morning as we are also reminded afresh of the riches of God's grace that is ours in Christ Jesus as we worship him today. In the list of the 12 apostles found in John 21 in verse 2, we read that Nathaniel was from Cana in Galilee, a town very close to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And Cana, as you will recall, was the town where Jesus performed his first miracle, turning the water into wine. But we find what little there is to know about Nathaniel in John chapter 1, and I would invite you to turn there this morning. John chapter 1, and here we will discover Three very helpful insights about this beloved apostle that can speak to all of us. The first that we will see is that he was a seeker of God. Secondly, we will discover that he was prone to prejudice. And thirdly, we will see that he was genuine. A seeker of God, prone to prejudice, but also a genuine man. 
Follow with me as I read beginning in verse 43 of John 1. The next day, Jesus purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. As I reflected upon this text, one of the things that stood out to me is that, first of all, Nathanael was a seeker of God. First of all, think of the context. Philip, remember fastidious Philip, as we studied a few weeks ago, the obsessive, hyper-organized process person. We see that Philip sees Jesus, understands who he is and follows him. And then he goes, according to verse 45 here, and he finds his friend Nathaniel. Evidently, they were best friends. We see that their names were listed together in all of the lists in the Gospels. Plus, early legends in the church, in the early church, depict them as close companions. And Nathaniel was probably, I would surmise, a very easygoing, patient, kind type of a guy. He would have to be in order to survive Philip's everything-by-the-book personality. Someone has well said that perfectionists make themselves and everyone around them miserable. So certainly Philip was bent towards that, and therefore I would believe that probably Nathaniel was a man that was patient and kind and brought balance to his friend's life. But notice what verse 45, the last part of the verse, goes on to say as Philip speaks to him. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. The we, of course, is a reference to the others that Nathaniel would have also known, his fellow Jews, godly men that were also looking for their Messiah. And we know from this context that it would have been Andrew and Peter and James and John who had also just found the Lord Jesus. I should say he found them. And then John the Baptist, earlier in the text, in verse 36, tells these men, Behold the Lamb of God. And so now Philip runs to find his dear friend. And he says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Now, folks, can you imagine saying that To someone today that does not know Christ. Think about it. Such a statement implies something of infinite importance. What it implies is that Nathaniel was seeking the Messiah. He was looking for the Savior. He was a seeker in the true sense of the word. And his search was guided not by human wisdom. It was not guided by the philosophies of the world. It was not guided by some mystical intuition. It was not even guided by logic, but it was guided by the revealed word of the living God. Now, it's important for you to understand. Nathaniel was not a believer in Christ. He was just now meeting him, but he was a believer in God as his savior as the justifier. Think with this. Think about this with me for just a moment. We know that according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the things of God to the natural man are foolishness, the, the, the um, um, 
the natural man does not accept them. That text tells us uh, they are spiritually discerned. They have no capacity to understand truth. And so therefore, only a person who hates their sin and and loves God will be one that is searching for truth from the scripture. And we see this with Nathaniel. And so Nathaniel we could surmise, had been justified by faith prior to this. It's important for you to understand this. Like Abraham, whose faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, according to Romans 4, 9. Reckoned is a term that uh, denotes an economic or even a, 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 a legal transaction where someone has something credited to their account from another person's account. And so like Abraham, whose faith was imperfect, Nathaniel was a recipient of divine grace and he was justified by his faith in God's saving mercy. And so he knew God as savior and he was searching now in the scriptures for his Messiah. Remember, faith in itself has no power to save. I want to make this clear. It is never the basis or the reason for salvation. Faith is a gift from God that provides the channel for redeeming grace to be bestowed. And so God had infused Nathaniel with his own righteousness because Nathaniel knew that his righteousness could never save him. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter four, beginning in verse four. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now, remember, the Jews of this day, including Nathaniel, were still living under the old Mosaic covenant. They were waiting for something better, according to Hebrews 11, verse 40. They were waiting for the new covenant of grace that was promised in Jeremiah 31 and in other passages. They were looking for the great Menachem, the great consoler, the great rest giver, the comforter. They were looking for the Messiah to come. The one that was pictured in all of the symbols of the sacrificial system. They were looking for the Lamb of God. So the righteousness of Christ was imputed to these dear people of the Old Testament era. It was imputed to them even before the lamb was slain. Prior to the cross, the believer's sin was paid in anticipation of Christ's atoning work. So obviously, Nathaniel longed to see his Savior, his King, his Messiah. And so he was a seeker. He knew the Old Testament. He would have no doubt remembered Psalm 69 and verse 32, where David recognizes that salvation comes only from the Lord. And he acknowledges that the hearts of those who seek God shall live. He no doubt understood Psalm 40 and verse 16, where the psalmist tells us, let all who seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let those who love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. You see, folks, this is the stuff of a genuine seeker. Indeed, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, pertaining to the reward of saving grace that Enoch sought in the Old Testament, Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, why would anyone seek after God? Because they know they are lost. Because they know they need forgiveness of sin. Now, let me digress for a moment. One of Satan's primary weapons in attacking the church today is to convince people that they're not lost. That they really have no need, therefore, to seek a savior. And frankly, the raging fires of apostasy and contemporary evangelicalism are are fueled by false teachers who convince people that Jesus is a blesser and a banker rather than a savior and Lord. 
while others, like the incredibly popular and dangerous seeker-sensitive movement, do something a little different. They instead water down the gospel to attract crowds. And sadly, they are utterly oblivious to God's sovereign work of grace and salvation. And they wrongly assume that the gospel of Christ needs to be repackaged because, after all, it is too offensive in its purest form. So it must be diluted. And they wrongly, therefore, assume that the church needs to become more relevant to seekers. Well, folks, it all depends upon how you define a seeker. They fail to realize that their so-called seekers are not seeking salvation. They are seeking vindication. They're not seeking salvation from sin. They're not saying, oh, what must I do to be saved? I want to find a church. I want to find some people that can tell me what must I do to be saved because I'm lost in my sin. But rather, they're seeking to be vindicated and exonerated to have their sins excused. And they go to every imaginable effort to justify themselves in their own eyes according to their own standard. A standard which is systematically being lowered by those that would call themselves the church. And so people will come to church so that they can feel good. And many churches go to great efforts to find out what will make these people feel good. Be sensitive to my felt needs and, and, and don't offend me by exposing my sin and telling me that I'm going to be judged and that there's a hell and I can only make it to heaven unless I be, believe in Jesus. I, I, I just don't like to hear that type of thing. Well, folks, if that's their heart, they're not seeking. And as a result, churches replace exposition with entertainment. And the gospel is watered down to become more palatable, easier to swallow. And through the use of clever gimmicks to meet the felt needs of seekers, methodology takes precedence over theology and planning worship services. And frankly, folks, in, in all honesty, I, I don't believe that anything close to worship occurs in those places. The ruling philosophy is basically, let's become as much like the world as we possibly can in order to win it. Worship services, therefore, center around man and his needs, not God and his glory. A great example of that is one that we've discussed of late. I spent a great deal of time a few Wednesday nights ago explaining the dangers of the purpose-driven church. Rick Warren is kind of the author of that, and I certainly mean nothing against him. But certainly what he teaches, I think, is very dangerous. His new purpose-driven life is evidently selling one million copies per month. And of course, as you've learned before, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, there is a narrow gate that very few will find. And there is a wide gate that many will rush through. There is a narrow way and there is a broad way. And whenever you see hordes of people running through a gate, you can pretty well guess that it is a gate that will ultimately lead to destruction. Those books, which is really indicative of the false understanding of seekers, those books are filled with bad theology, shallow doctrine, Verses that are out of context, unbiblical promises that are offered to all people without making any distinction between believers and non-believers. And frankly, it is an ingenious counterfeit. And folks, I'm warning you as your pastor, it is dangerous stuff. Sometimes it's not so much what is said that is bad, even though in places it's bad, but it is what is left out that is so dangerous. In the book, The Purpose Driven Life, there's no discussion of the very heart of the gospel. There is no mention of the holiness of God, of the law of God, of the wrath of God, of the judgment of God upon sinners because they have violated God's law. No mention of hell, no mention of the reason for the cross, the sinfulness of man, the power of his fallen flesh, no mention of the need for for repentance. 
There's no discussion of the cost of discipleship or of the sovereignty of God or living for his glory. The gospel invitation and the purpose driven life, for example, is watered down to a point where the reader is merely asked to, and I quote, whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you, end quote. Well, folks, that's great, but believe in what? And you're going to receive what? These people don't know what they're believing in. He goes on to say, quote, if you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. You see, folks, this is easy believism at its worst. This is the way to fill your church with tares. Instead of the emphasis being on the glorious truths of the gospel, it had been eviscerated in an effort to somehow make it more palatable and less offensive. What you will read is a great emphasis on the love of God, good selfish image, being happily married and having a happy family, how to have spiritual success, how to have unity and how to find personal fulfillment. You see, that stuff sells. But not to those who are seeking salvation from sin. Warren's advice in the purpose driven life centers around, and I quote, refocusing your thoughts joining a support group. And when he talks about what we would call the patterns of sin in one's life, it's redefined and reduced to simply, and I quote, a repeating cycle of good intention, failure and guilt in which people need to be, quote, healed because they are, quote, sick. Warren admits that three of the four intended results of his book and the purpose driven life are to reduce your stress Simplify your decisions and increase your satisfaction. Dear friends, this was not the case with Nathaniel. He did not seek God to reduce his stress, to simplify his decisions and to increase his satisfaction and to somehow find purpose in his life. He sought the Lord because he knew he was lost in his sins and he was hopeless and desperate because of the condition of his soul. He knew that he had violated God's holy law. He knew that he deserved death and an eternal death. And he knew that he could not save himself. And see, so he sought after God for undeserved mercy and pardon. That's the stuff of a seeker. Philip did not come to Nathaniel and say, Nathaniel, we have found him who will give us a good self-image, a happy family, spiritual success, unity. And personal fulfillment. That would have been utterly ridiculous. The gospel has been distorted in so many circles these days to somehow be a document that tells us how to find self-fulfillment rather than how to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Christ. And yet that was his invitation in fact, in that very promise or in that very text, God gives us a promise of suffering, not self-fulfillment. Follow me, even if it takes you to a cross. And by the way, that text goes on to say in Mark chapter eight and verse thirty four, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. So you have personal fulfillment. And boy, that's nice. So you have a reduction of stress. That's great. Folks, what does that profit? If you've never had forgiveness of sin. By the way, that text goes on to say. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him. When he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Folks, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Well, regarding seekers, regarding Nathaniel, you might say, well, wait a minute. I thought that no one seeks after God because Romans chapter three and verse 11 says there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So 
how could Nathaniel or anyone truly be a seeker in the true sense of the word? Well, it is true that man is utterly unwilling and incapable of seeking God unless the father draws him. John 644. It is true that the human will possesses no inclination to holiness. It is true that man is utterly depraved. His eyes are blind to truth. His ears are deaf to truth. The scripture is very clear about that. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins. In fact, such a spiritual corpse, if you will, cannot in any way cooperate with grace in any way until it is regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, who has sovereignly determined in eternity past upon whom he will dispense his grace. All of that is true. In fact, I could put it this way. Regeneration is monergistic. It is not synergistic. Salvation is all of grace. We do not share in the glory of our salvation. The new birth or regeneration must both proceed, or I should say, precede and elicit saving faith in Christ. Now, having said all of that, obviously, this had happened in Nathaniel and the others. Because as you think about it, because of what we see in this text with Nathaniel, we see that the spirit of God had breathed the life of regeneration into his rotting corpse of sin. And then by the power of divine grace of the spirit of God, he was miraculously born again. And simultaneously with his new birth, he saw the sword of divine justice looming over his unholy head. And in the desperation of soul, he cried out, oh, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And by grace alone, through faith alone, he was delivered from the kingdom of darkness and the wrath to come. And he was redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And now, dear friends, the incarnate lamb of God was standing before him. So Jesus reveals himself in the flesh to, first of all, Philip, who now comes to Nathanael and says, we have found him. The one whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus. It is the Aramaic form of the word Yeshua, Joshua in the Old Testament. And that means Yahweh is salvation, a name whose significance undoubtedly struck Nathaniel, who knew the Old Testament promises. He had been studying them, obviously, we see. And that is why he had fled from the wrath to come. He had previously responded to the Savior's invitation to repent that was given, for example, through the prophet Zephaniah and Zephaniah chapter two and verse two. Zephaniah tells us before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Folks, imagine saying that to a massive crowd of seekers. Obviously, Zephaniah was not seeker sensitive. Imagine having a large crowd that is indicative of so many churches today and saying to them, Dear friends, here's what the word of God says before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Well, certainly, if you were to do that, you would empty a place, right? For the most part, yes, but dear friends, there will always be some that will hear the truth and respond to it. So Nathaniel was looking for his Messiah. He was a seeker of God, evidenced by his eager desire to seek divine truth found in the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. But also we see part of part of his humanness here that is really indicative of all of us from time to time. Secondly, he was prone to prejudice. Notice verse 46. And Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> like all of us, Nathaniel had his biases. Prejudices that are typically fueled by pride. That feeling of superiority that we all tend to struggle with. 
It's kind of funny when you think about it. Nathaniel's hometown was in Cana, and it wasn't even as prestigious as Nazareth, which was down the road. Cana was really off the beaten path, or at least Nazareth was on a crossroad. You know, it's like somebody from Adams demeaning someone from Jolton, you know. And you will recall that throughout the New Testament, most all of the all of the Jews scoffed at the folks from the region of Galilee, that whole area. They were the uneducated folks. You might say the rednecks of Israel. They were not the political and the religious elite from Jerusalem. In fact, throughout the New Testament, the apostles, as well as Jesus himself, were were ridiculed because of where they were from in the Galilee. Remember the Pharisees in John 7:52 teased Nicodemus saying, "Are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee." So that was the mindset here and certainly that had worn off on Nathaniel. Folks, we must all guard against prejudice. The way we can subtly Resent others because their race is different or their culture is different or their educational background is different or they're from some other denomination or they have some other background or affiliation that we deem beneath us. We are constantly told, of course, to be discriminating with respect to Bible doctrine, to discern truth from error. But folks, it is a grievous sin to demean others merely because they are different from us. Frankly, the poisonous waters of prejudice are inevitably drawn from the wells of ignorance and pride. I, I find this from time to time. I, I was even talking with some folks this week who were told by other supposedly Christian people that they're going to go to hell because they do not use the King James only. Others have been told that they're going to hell because they've been divorced or because they don't attend a certain church. I've heard that our people are going to hell for some of these reasons and others, but one of which would be that we have an instrument in the church. And others are told that they're going to hell because they haven't yet been baptized. And you have all this stuff that comes out of ignorance and pride. And it's really tragic, folks, when we immediately are suspect of someone's faith or or their spiritual their spirituality just because they come out of some religious tradition other than our own. So we need to be careful with that. But notice how Philip responded to his friend's knee-jerk bias. In verse 46, at the end of the verse, he says, come and see. In other words, don't judge a book by its cover. Read it. So he heeded his friend's advice and he set aside his prejudice and, and he went to honestly evaluate the validity of Peter's claim or of Philip's claim and here we discover another wonderful insight into the character of Nathaniel. That is that thirdly, he was genuine. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Folks, when I was meditating upon this text, I, I must tell you, I was really struck with this scene in my mind's eye. Think with me on this. He, being, being the Lord, sees Nathaniel coming to him. What an incredible thought. Here, this sovereign God of the universe has his eyes fixed on Nathaniel coming to him. And folks, frankly, this is something that God had seen even in eternity past. He had decreed this moment to come. The one who had sought after Nathaniel before he was even born, the one who saw him from the glorious throne room of heaven, even before time began, according to Scripture, the one one who loved him with an everlasting love, while he was even yet a sinner, with his prejudice and all, this very one now sees him at this point in time. And I think about the reality that here the very Messiah who had sought him with irresistible, this irresistible force of saving grace was now looking at his adopted son through his incarnate eyes approaching. The lover of his soul sees his searching child Walking towards him. Oh, child of God, doesn't this 
just shout to you the intimate love and involvement of our precious Jesus. It never ceases to amaze me. And beloved, think of this, even as Jesus gazed upon Nathanael coming towards him, he has seen us as well from before time began. And he sees us even this very day. He sees us when we come to him and he sees us when we turn our backs upon him. I think of Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, the psalmist says, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. I'm reminded of Hagar's response. Remember in Genesis 16 and verse 13, she responded to God's promise to her regarding her unborn son, Ishmael, and she said, Thou art a God who sees. Friends, may I pause here a moment? Do you realize that there are a myriad of eyes that watch us every moment? There are spirits, both holy and unholy, dispatched to observe our character and our conduct. It would even be safe to say that their eyes are riveted upon us right now. For some of you that have chosen to remain in the bondage of sin, it would be safe to say that you are probably being escorted here today by demons that do everything they can to ensure that you remain incarcerated in the kingdom of darkness. And make sure that the seeds of the gospel are plucked from you before they have a chance to germinate in your heart and free you from the bondage and the penalty of sin. And then for those of us that by faith through grace have been saved, there are those holy angels that are watching us, I'm sure, right now. We know that according to Scripture, they rejoice at the news of one sinner that repents. But we also know that they remain forever vigilant to minister and, and to protect and to provide. Indeed, because of the love of God, untold hosts of invisible creatures attend to our needs in ways that we could never imagine. They hear our conversations. They hear our prayers hear our songs, they watch what we do, they observe all our deeds, both good and bad. In fact, we could say, based on the scripture, that myriads of angelic spirits unseen to us battle against the forces of the prince and the power of the air to keep the elect safe upon the paths of divine providence. Oh, child of God, here's what I want you to see. We do not walk in this world in obscurity. We are seen both by devils and angels alike. But, oh, friends, all of this pales into, into utter insignificance when compared to the inconceivable reality that we live our lives in the full light of the omniscient gaze of a holy God. So... Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, a gaze that began in eternity past. And what an astounding testimony to the Savior's sight and to the souls of his chosen ones. So Nathanael eventually locks eyes with his Creator and suddenly hears him say in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Wow, what a remarkable tribute. Wouldn't that be wonderful for the Lord to say of you and of me? And certainly what an anomaly in the Jewish culture. Here was a genuine, sincere worshiper of Yahweh. Not some self-righteous hypocrite, some religious phony, like so many of the Jews that had all of the trappings, all of the veneer of religiosity, 
They were, as I would say, all sizzle and no steak. And here the omniscient Christ peers into the soul of this one that's coming towards him and he finds integrity. Oh, yes, he's still a sinner. He's got prejudice and so on, things that I'm sure we don't even read about. But, folks, here was a man who longed to be one who worshipped God in spirit and in truth. Ask yourself, could he say that of you? Are you one in whom is no guile? In other words, are you sincere or are you phony? Nathaniel's character illustrated Paul's commentary on Jewish hypocrisy in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. We read, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Well, stunned at Jesus' statement and no doubt skeptical, Nathaniel looks at the Lord and he says in verse 48, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, folks, think of this. Here, Jesus displays his glory by exercising his omniscience and thus, once again, validating his messiahship. He could have said, I saw you in your house or I saw you in the marketplace or, you know, I, I saw you walking down the road the other night. Or he could have used any number of illustrations where the omniscient Lord could have seen him. But isn't it interesting that he says, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, friends, I would submit to you that based upon Nathaniel's response, the Lord's choice of this site had profound significance to the heart of Nathaniel. And I believe that it was under the cool shade of a certain fig tree where Nathaniel routinely met with God alone. I believe that it was under this fig tree where Nathaniel searched the scriptures for clues to be able to understand and to discern the coming Messiah. It was perhaps under this tree where Nathaniel communed with God in prayer. It was probably under this fig tree that the Lord knew this would be where Nathaniel would meet. This was his, his secret chamber where he would go to do business with the lover of his soul. To pour out his heart in confession and, and cry out for mercy. Where his soul would overflow with doxologies of praise for undeserved grace. And now suddenly he realizes he is standing in the presence with the one with whom he has communed. And he says in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And frankly, both of those statements indicate his familiarity with the Old Testament messianic prophecies, which spoke of the coming Messiah in these very terms, the son of God. And the king of Israel. Might I also remind you that the primary emphasis of John's gospel is to exalt the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And over and over again, as you read in the gospel of John, he will demonstrate the fact that Jesus was, in fact, the son of God. And now, once again, the inspired author under, uh, underscores this glorious truth. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And then in verse 50, Jesus answered and he said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Now, folks, I believe this is more a promise than, than a question. In other words, I think what he's saying here is, Nathaniel, this sample of my omniscience that has convinced you of who I am is, is merely the beginning of what I'm going to show you in days to come. You believe in this? Just wait. 
You believe because of this, just wait. This is a preview of coming attractions. In verse 50 at the end, he says, you shall see greater things than these. In other words, I will show you things beyond your imagination, Nathaniel. I will show you miracles that will demonstrate my power over over sin and over Satan and over disease and over nature. And all of these things will serve to strengthen your faith even beyond its present capacity to trust in me. And then he goes on to say in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is a reference, of course, to Genesis chapter 28. You remember the story. Jacob was a lonely traveler. He was leaving the land of Canaan. He was in need of divine comfort. The sun was beginning to set and it was time to rest. And the text tells us that he found a stone for his pillow and he decided to lay down and he fell asleep. And in his sleep, the Lord spoke to him in a dream. And in that dream, he saw a stairway leading from earth to heaven. And there were angels ascending and descending on this stairway or as some translations would put it, a ladder. And in that dream, we know that God was trying to encourage Jacob to try to let him know that he was still on the throne and that he was intimately involved in the affairs of man. And that he was proving this to him by showing him in the vision that he was dispatching his holy angels going up and down to do his bidding, to carry out his divine decrees, reminding Jacob that he indeed was a Hesed God, a God that would be faithful to his covenantal promises. And he was reconfirming the Abrahamic covenant to him that he indeed would give Jacob's descendants the, the land and, and the promised seed and the blessing. And as evidence of that promise, as evidence of that coming reality, he revealed his angelic servants going up and down, tirelessly involved in that glorious process. Now, God, knowing Nathaniel's theological and biblical understanding, because he was a believer who was still searching the scriptures to know more of his God. God, therefore, uses this Old Testament event in the life of Jacob to simply say to Nathaniel something like this. Nathaniel, even as I allowed Jacob to see a vision of my supernatural involvement in the affairs of men to accomplish my sovereign will. So, too, I will reveal myself to you and you other men that are with him. But would you notice something? Would you notice in verse 51, there is no ladder. There is no stairway in this text like there is in Genesis 21. Only the ascending and descending angels. Why? Beloved, this is so important for you to grasp Because the bridge between heaven and earth is now the Son of Man. You see, He alone is our access to God. He alone is our stairway to heaven. And it is through His power and His grace that God continues to accomplish His divine will in the lives of men. As even the Spirit of God dwells within those That he has redeemed. Well, what a thrilling moment this must have been in the life of Nathaniel, a man who had by divine grace sought after God. And yet we see he was still human, evidenced by his prejudice. And yet he was a man of integrity. Well, folks, apart from this, we know nothing about this dear apostle. Early church records indicate that he served the Lord in India and in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And there's a high probability that he spread the gospel possibly as far as Armenia. There are conflicting traditions with respect to his death. One tradition says that he was tied up in a sack and thrown into the sea alive to drown. Another said that he was crucified. We don't know for sure. 
But certainly there is a high probability that he was martyred like all the apostles except John. And folks, I would challenge you to ponder these great truths in your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to to use them to conform you to the image of Christ. I would ask you to ask the Spirit of God to conform you and to shape your life as he did Nathaniel's life. And if I could especially leave you with the thought, dear friends, he sees you as if you are the only object in the universe for which he should behold. He looks into your heart. He can look into the secret recesses of your imagination. (laughs) Every secret sin is exposed in the full light of his holy gaze. And then finally, for those of you that are really living a phony life and you really don't know Christ, it could not be said of you, there is a person without guile. For those of you that don't know Christ, may I humbly say to you, as a minister of the gospel of Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, the scripture tells us. Believe what? Believe that Christ died for your sins and that you could not save yourself and that you have violated his holy law and therefore you deserve an eternal death. But by his grace, the father sent the son to die on your behalf and my behalf. He bore your punishment and mine and his resurrection from the grave will guarantee yours. And when you believe these things in your heart. And you will confess your sin and you will confess Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And if he gives you the gift of faith, you will believe these truths and you will be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And you will trust in his mercy and his love will be yours for eternity. And this day you can experience the miracle of the new birth. May I plead with you in that regard. Let's pray together. Oh, God, thank you for these glorious truths. Lord, they stir our hearts with such holy affections. Lord, we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you saw us before time began and you set your love upon us. And then at the proper time, you drew us with an irresistible compelling to yourself. Oh, God, how we thank you that our salvation is by Grace alone through faith alone. Lord, I pray that the truths that we have learned today will somehow move our hearts with a passion to be more conformed to the image of our precious Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for those who are here still in the bondage of their sins. Oh God, sweep over their soul with such conviction that they will find no rest until they bow their knee to the Savior knowing that they can do it now and receive grace, or they can do it yet in the future, and they will receive eternal damnation. God, thank you for meeting with us today. We love you for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.